Hey everyone, welcome back to the College Age Movement Podcast. We uh, had a great opportunity to sit down with our head pastor, Nate Petzl, a couple weeks ago. And over our social media for the last couple weeks, we've been releasing 10-minute clips of a Q&A that we did. The questions range from who are influential his, uh, historical figures, what are some key scriptures, to what's your personal view of hell, uh, do you think God is communicating anything through COVID, all of those kinds of things. And we wanted to get the audio out for those of you who just like to listen to a podcast in the car or something like that. So here is the full interview with head pastor Nate Petzl. We hope that it's really life-giving for you, that you get a ton of information, and that you can engage with it really well. You're listening to the College Age Movement Podcast. Well, hey, Nate. How are you doing? I'm well, Evan. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Uh, so I'm just going to walk you through some questions that have been submitted by students over the last week and uh, love to just get your feedback. And uh, we'll start with... Um, how do we discern and approach spiritual gifts biblically? How do we discern and approach spiritual gifts biblically? Okay. A couple thoughts. First, you know, a question and answer. I never, I mean, I just never feel like, I feel like I, there's less I know than what I know. So I don't want to approach any question and answer time like, oh, and here's the answer to all that. I'll probably answer a lot of these questions with questions because I'm not always sure we ask the right questions. So I, I, I don't approach this as like, a, I don't know, some expert. I'm, I'm a learner. Um, about that question in particular, I think the last word in the question is how do we approach this biblically? I think that's brilliant. So to the best of my ability, that's how I want to answer these because you guys don't care what my opinion is and I don't really care what my opinion is. But what we're looking for is something bigger, like a truth beyond us, correct? So how do we discern and approach spiritual gifts biblically? There are a couple of key places that I think would be important for us to go to learn about spiritual gifts. Um, you could review it through the Old Testament, that there were these gifts given intermittently, but mainly to key leaders. And they were always given for a period of time. So like during the time of the judges, we'll use that as an example. You'll see this phrase in the book of the Judges that the Spirit of the Lord came upon, and it would be that judge. It would be Samson. We'll use Samson. And then when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, he did these extraordinary things. But the, what seems to be implied is the Spirit of the Lord came upon for a specific task. And when the task was completed, then this presence, a supernatural presence, left. So through the Old Testament, you'd see that. You'd see like it appears that when David becomes king, you know, there's an inauguration and that was poured oil. Oil was symbolic of the spirit being on you. So it looks like people are given gifts for unique talents or unique opportunities they have in front of them. Now, if we come to the New Testament, where we'd start with this whole idea of gifts would be Acts. So the setting is Jesus has been there for 50 days after his resurrection um, he's been preparing people. And then as he ascends into heaven, you know, his parting words are, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem and the spirit is going to come upon you and he will give you power. I think there's our keyword to be my witnesses. And then he lists out three geographic areas. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So he says, when the spirit comes, you're going to receive power. So that's, 
That's what I'm going to be then looking for as I read through Acts. Then in Acts chapter 2, of course, you have this um, amazing event that takes place. You've got how Luke records it as he says, they were all together in one accord or in unity in a room. And the sound of a violent wind came blowing. Tongues of fire fell upon them, or what seemed to be tongues of fire. And then they begin to speak in different languages. It's the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. So you have tens of thousands of Jewish people who live in other parts of the Roman Empire who are gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. It was one of the feasts where everybody came to Jerusalem. And then the disciples have these supernatural languages that seem to be human languages that they begin to speak. Now, it's interesting that, that Paul uses these two, or excuse me, Luke uses these two things, the sound of fire. Um, wind has always been representative of the Holy Spirit. You can track this, Ezekiel's vision, the Valley of Dry Bones, the Ruha in Hebrew, the wind of God blows over it. The, the bones start to come together and make an army. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, God blows his wind or his breath, the Ruha, into Adam. Adam's a, a biological entity, but he doesn't become fully human until God blows wind to him. So there's this long-standing idea in Hebrew culture that the wind of God is the life of God. And then in Greek, the word is pneuma, which is spirit or breath. Same thing. So here comes the wind. So God is, I think that Acts chapter 2 is telling a second creation story. And so here you have this church, like Adam, they're biologically alive, but they're missing something to be fully human. So God is now breathing into his church new life, his spirit, okay? And then the tongues of fire uh, came to rest on each of them. Fire has always been representative. Remember, these are Hebrew people of the presence of God. So you've got we could, there's a thousand of them, but you've got the people of Israel being led by a, a pillar of fire at night, Moses in the burning bush. Fire was this presence of God in the tabernacle, which was the temporary um, church setting before the temple was built. There was always fire burning, representing God. So now the unique thing, here, here's what Luke says, it came to rest on each of them. And what happens that was different than the Old Testament is it stayed came to rest. And so here you have for the first time these spiritual gifts being deposited on people for a task, like in the book of Judges. But the task is to what? Go into all the world and make disciples. And so these spiritual gifts have been given. And I think sometimes why they get confusing, sometimes I think the church can use them as like their entertainment or their 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 they're the type of phenomenon that make a church service really interesting. But from what I understand biblically, the gifts were given to give us power to accomplish the assignment, the mission. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. So how do you balance those? Well, just fast forward a couple decades, and you've got the church in Corinth. So this is one place I would go, the book of Corinthians. Church in Corinth, who like, all these gifts are awesome, right? And Paul starts listing them. But... They're using them in, it's becoming chaotic in their setting. And so up until this point, the only people who spoke on behalf of God were the prophets, the priests. Now, this commissioning on each one of them, not just the prophets, there's the presence of God. So I think people are taking advantage of this. They're like, hey, multiple people are speaking in 
um, glossolalia, which is, uh, you know, these unknown languages or unlearned languages at one time. And Paul gets into this argument. He says, boy, you know, these things were meant to, um, to help you further the gospel, but instead it's confusing. And if somebody comes into your church who doesn't know, they're not a disciple of Jesus, <laughs> be like, what is happening? Like, these people are all speaking different languages over each other. And so Paul walks through, and what he wants is them to be really orderly. Like, this doesn't have to be chaos. And he makes some interesting statements. It says, like, when a gift is upon you, you're not possessed by the gift. The gift doesn't overpower you. You have the capacity to lead and usher that gift and use it in a proper way. So biblically, how do we do that? Well, I would contend this. I would contend, Evan, the, the gifts um, oftentimes in that book of Acts are referred to as signs and wonders. So here's where I see gifts operating best in my life. It's when I am commuting, communicating to someone who is far from God, who God is. I think he loves to prove himself. It's a sign. It's a wonder. It's a sign that, oh, I can't describe or explain what happened naturally. That was supernatural or a wonder. It makes people rethink their life entirely. So I actually find it fascinating that I pray for people who are not followers of Jesus to be healed. And I find them healed much more frequently than I do believers who I pray for. Um, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. I find that um, those operate in me with strangers who are far from God, uh, even more naturally than in a church setting. So I think one thing we want to be careful of is we believe in all these things. Paul actually says in Corinthians, he says, you know, like I personally, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but he also says, but love. So first Corinthians 13 is right there in the middle of it. He goes, man, I could speak in the tongues of men, men of angels. I could do all these miraculous things, but if I don't have love, if my heart behind it isn't, I want to love people well and expose them to, to the love of God. It just, it's nothing. So there's the potential to be operating in spiritual gifts out of the context of love, and it ends up just being pointless and empty and fruitless. So biblically, I think those are some of the, some of the key passages that help us understand how to operate in those gifts and to do it biblically, okay? So it can be taken into extreme. Um, heard a long time ago to avoid, you don't want to seek the gifts, you're seeking the giver of the gifts, Right? So I think sometimes like, I just want the gift of prophecy or the gift of whatever it is. And your focus is on the gift. We never want our focus to be on the gift. We're always focusing on Jesus, right? And then whatever gifts he wants to bring about through my life, that's entirely up to him. So I do believe that every believer is given supernatural gifts, but they're different. So don't have gift envy. You know, some people are, they've got a gift that they can lead in worship or you know, something that is easily recognizable. Some of our gifts are more, oh, like I have a gift to serve or the gift of administration, something like that. And it's not as visible and oftentimes not as um, certain gifts you get a reward publicly. <laughs> like people are like, whoa, she's gifted. But other gifts are behind the scenes. And so that brings me final spot where Paul's going to talk about um, gifts. And then he talks about the church and he says, you want to be like a body, like all these gifts have to work together in coordination. So not opposing one another. And that's where Paul says, you know, 
hey, some of us are like eyes or a nose, and some of us are like a gallbladder, all right? And you don't want to be wishing you were something other than what you are. Everybody's giving gifts. They're just different. So I think the key is how do I identify some of my gifts, and then how do I operate in them? Operating in them in a way that points people back to Jesus, not towards me as the one through whom the gifts have, have uh, taken place. And that's, that's so good. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I want to piggyback off that one and ask another question. Um, kind of uh, to, to make it simple, it says, do you believe that a church can be overly focused on spiritual things? Do you believe a church can be overly focused on spiritual things? Yeah, yeah. I think I can see what's behind that question. So I, I would probably answer no. Okay. So I don't think a church can be like, oh, that place is way too spiritual. I think we should be very, very spiritual. But on the inverse side of that, I would say, but I do believe that a church can deny or not be engaged with practical things. Okay, so be as spiritual as you want, right? That's a good thing. But if my spirituality um, doesn't make room for the practical things, right? So that's care for the poor. It's bringing about justice. It's all these things. If, if I'm, I'm just like, what's the old phrase? If I'm so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good, I'm in trouble. So I, I think churches should be incredibly spiritual, but also engaged in the here and now. We live in this not yet already. So Jesus has already come. The kingdom has started. And his parting words to us were what? Continue to expand this kingdom, bring people into the kingdom, bring about the hope and healing that the gospel provides. But if I'm in a church setting where all we do is talk about the spiritual realm, you can't divorce. So there's this vertical relationship we have with God, right? So if a church, I think, have a strong a vertical relationship as you can with God. But the New Testament goes on and on, like the book of James would be an example. Say, so, no, but these relationships with other human beings are spiritual. They're just as important. The book of 1 John, what does John say? Says, Listen, like, if you don't actually love people, he says, I don't think you love God. So I can't just have a solely spiritual relationship with God. It has to be worked out in my relationships as well. That's good. That's good. Um, one of the other questions, uh, this is the creation of man and woman is mentioned in Genesis chapter 127, but then Eve's not talked about until Genesis 221. Can you explain why that might, why that may be? Okay. So I can't tell you definitively why those two accounts are a bit different. They share a lot, but I can talk to you a little bit about biblical genre. And I think it'll help us understand that. So first, let's talk about the setting. Okay, so the book of Genesis, it's always important for us to remember who that was written to. So one of our primary biblical interpretation schemes is who was the original audience, okay? Because a lot of times what we do is we want to read the text and bring it into our world. First thing we want to do is, what did this mean to the original hearers? And then we can ask the question, what does it mean to us? So Genesis is written by Moses. And apparently it's written during these 40 years of wandering wilderness, okay, by these people who were slaves for 400 years and now they're free. And here's what happened for 400 years while they were in Egypt. They were told they were less than human, okay, they weren't Egyptian, so they weren't that important. They were told that 
the gods had to do with the physical realm. So the sun, the Nile River, Isis, Osira, um, all, all of nature was the gods. And so you found God in nature. So this has been ensconced. This has been enculturated in them for 400 years. So one of the first things that God wants to do with the people of Israel now that they're escaped, okay, is he wants to redefine for them who they are. So that's the opening of Genesis. It's going to talk about the history of their people, but it starts with the very beginning. And the whole creation narrative is this. God made the stars. He made the sun. The sun is not God, right? The earth has order. The Egyptian creation narrative has to do with all this violence and things being torn in part and the earth's torn in two. He says, oh, no, no. This God who has rescued you from Egypt, here's who he is. He is the creator. He's the one who um, was uncreated. He's preexistent. And you're going to walk through. And, and if you were, you've been told that you're subhuman because you're not Egyptian and a slave. Genesis chapter one says, and on that last day of creation, who does he make? He makes Adam and Eve, right? And he says, they're very good. And so can you imagine a whole bunch of Hebrews who are in the middle of the desert and they, it just dawns on them. We are very good by God's standards. Like he loves us. We're created on purpose. We have value, even though we're not Egyptian. So the second thing would have to do with genre then. And this is one of our biggest challenges in reading the Bible. I, I don't think that enough of us understand that the Bible has specific genres. So what do I mean by genre? Let me define that. Um, I'm doing a lot of reading during this like quarantine deal, right? So some books I know are fiction, okay? That's the genre. It's not true. It's just a good story. Some books are biographies. So when I read a biography, I'm assuming that it is accurate, right? A history book, that's different. There's poetry. I was just talking with my son. He's trying to do his homework. He's working on Romeo and Juliet. And what if he read Romeo and Juliet and he thought this was a historical book? It's not. It's a work of fiction, right? Now, fiction has some beautiful things. It has lessons for us to learn. So in the same way, there are different genres of writing in the Bible. You have law and you have poetry. So you've got all oh, books of Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes. You have some that's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, portions of Isaiah, portions of Daniel. Daniel's interesting because there's a historical section where Daniel's chronicling his life. And then there's these visions that he has where he changes genre in the same book and he begins to write apocalyptic. So in apocalyptic, as a reader, you were never supposed to take things literally. You understood that apocalyptic literature used images and analogies. And so you weren't trying to find like, well, what exactly does that mean? You're like, no, 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 no. He's painting a picture for me. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's the genre. So in Genesis chapter one, it's written from a historical kind of account, right? What we don't understand is Genesis chapter two is poetic. If you're able to read Hebrew, you realize, oh, this is a beautiful poem. And a Hebrew form of poetry is different than ours. It doesn't mean that everything rhymes, but it's a form of poetry. And so it's a retelling of the creation account, but from a poetic um, perspective, poetic genre. 
And so in this genre now, um, there's going to be much more detail. There's going to be, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we learn that um, Adam's alone, right? It's a little bit more, more romantic, and he feels lonely. And so God puts him to sleep and takes a rib out of his side and makes Eve. And then Adam's response is, oh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So that whole chapter is poetic interspersed because then after that we're going to move into more of a historical type genre as we walk through the different things even genesis 3 with the fall has a poetry feeling to it but after that we're going to start talking about abraham we're going to start moving through these different things and it's a history so i think that's why it's written that way um did one come before the other probably probably genesis chapter one was the original one and then later, Moses probably added chapter two, like here's a whole different way of looking at this that will help people understand what is happening. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm currently taking a class through Bible Project on the yeah. Hebrew Bible, and it's been very eye-opening, just the, the pure, just genre-specific understanding what you're reading before you read it completely changes <laughs> everything. It really does. It's, it's unbelievable. It was awesome. All right. I'm going to ask a couple of questions at 10, 10 minutes or less probably are going to do them justice, but I'm going to let you take a crack at it. Um, the first one being this, do you believe that a born again believer can lose their faith? Man. So Evan, this is, this is like one of those questions that has been going on for I, at least 500 years. Okay. So this might be one of those times where I'd say, I'm not sure that we're asking the right question. So you could trace this all the way back towards um, enlightenment thinking, reformation thinking in the church, where there are two main groups that began to uh, come out of the reformation. So you had um, Luther, what eventually came to be known as Arminianism. You had Calvin, um, many others, which uh, turned into Calvinism. So he, here's, the, here's the, the big question. What happens when someone is saved, right? So Calvinism would say this, is that human beings are dead, dead, dead. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, we die. So so dead that you're beyond repair. Okay, you, you couldn't even respond to God if, if you wanted to, right? So Luther and some others said, well, I think that we're broken and broken beyond repair, but there's, there's fragments of the image of God that we once bore within us, okay? So the nature of salvation then, in Calvin and his followers come up with this thing called tulip, right? So T is total depravity. And then the P is provenient grace, okay? This idea that I can't respond to God, so God chooses me and pours life into me. Luther said, wait, no, I don't think that's what happens at all. It says, I think that God reveals himself. Salvation comes only from God, but I have a choice in responding to God's love as he pours it out. Do I say yes or do I say no? So it's this whole issue of free will. So what actually happens when somebody's saved? How do they get there? Both agree. It is God and God alone, right? Um, Calvinism would say, but human beings have nothing to do with it. So God chooses some and says no to others. Other people are damned because God never chose them. So when I'm saved, can I then become unsaved? 
right? That's the question. So if you're with Luther and you had a choice to play to, in the part of salvation that you responded, and, and you'll notice which side we kind of end up being on. Like I ask people to respond to the gospel after our public services. I'm saying, I think you have a part to play. Do you say yes to Jesus? Well, could I then say no to Jesus? I tend not to, um, people want to argue with this all, uh, with me all the time on this. And I say, you know what? I don't think there's just two paths. I think it's bigger than that. I do think in the New Testament, there was a crisis early on, right? So the book of 1 John, the book of James, what do you have? You have a whole bunch of people who are saying, yes, I love Jesus and I've given my life to him. And James says, you know what? If you had really given your life to Jesus, your life would be different. That's why he goes on. Like literally, if you said yes to Jesus, he's going to regenerate you and you're going to start being kind. You're going to take care of the orphans and the widows and the poor. You are not going to be selfish any longer. Your, the trajectory of your life is going to move towards helping hurting people. John says this, he's looking at his church and he's like, holy smokes. Like I got these people in my church and they are mean. They hate people. They don't even love each other. And John says, I'm not sure that you've had a genuine um, revitalization of your life because if you did, the love of God would be in you and it would start to work its way out. So I, I'll answer this way, Evan. I do not think there is anything that you or I or anybody who's with us right now could ever do that would jeopardize God's love for them. So I, I don't think that there's like this line, okay? like on this side is I've lost my salvation. I don't think like, oh, I'm getting close. You know, like I murdered my third person. I'm probably over the line. I think God's grace is so big that I never have to worry about has my sin disqualified me? I do wonder, because I've just been doing this a few decades, I've seen people who seem to have a genuine faith in Jesus and seem to be reborn, but then who make choices like with their volition. It's a choice. It's not like they sinned and went over. It's like, they're like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I want to walk with God anymore. Um, so I don't, I, I think the question is this. Is there anything I can do that will disqualify me from salvation? No. I mean, God's grace is big enough. Question for me then becomes, if I chose to be a follower of Jesus, can I unchoose being a follower of Jesus? And I think that's a question we really have to struggle with. And I'm, I'm not actually sure where I'm at with that. All I do know that is if I've had a genuine experience and I've been regenerated, um, my life's going to change. And I think that's what the New Testament is asking of us, like a transformed, renewed life. You know, the question is, so when is salvation? When's that moment of regeneration? Is it like when I raised my hand at church, when I went down, you know, at the Billy Graham crusade? I, like, I can't see that. And that, that's why I think James and John write their books. They're like, there was never this moment, but the trajectory of your life needs to be moving in this area. That's proof that you've actually been saved. So there's a confusing answer to your question. No, it's great. It's fantastic. Better than I could ever put it. So that's good. Uh, the second one, also a tough one, is um, what is your personal view of hell? Uh, the options that the question have are annihilation, eternal conscious torment, or something else. Yeah. 
Well, Evan, the way I grew up, um, I've been only exposed to one view of hell. You know, like there's this eternal conscious torment, right? Which is just a terrifying proposition. Um, Jesus actually talks about hell. He uses some interesting words. He uses some Greek words that were popular at the time. Evan, I, I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. <clears throat> is it separation from God is terrifying and very uncomfortable. Okay, so every single place, there's nothing really in the Old Testament. Okay, there's not a clear teaching on, on hell. There's this Hebrew word sheol, which was the holding place of the dead. And it wasn't necessarily negative. It was just the place where the spiritual part of you went after the physical part of you died and it waited. And so Old Testament writers weren't even sure, were you conscious, were you aware? A lot of them proposed this thing called soul sleep, that you just were held by God. Um, it was referred to sometimes as Abraham's bosom, so like the safe place where God held you. And the New Testament, though, I mean, Jesus Jesus talks a lot about, he talks, he uses the word Gehenna, he uses the word Hades. Um, Hades, of course, was a Greek understanding of the underworld. Um, Gehenna was the valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And during an atrocious time um, in Hebrew's history, they had begun to worship the god Molech. And they set up a statue to the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom, um, which came to be known as Gehenna. And there, Molech, this is very disturbing, but Molech held a, a bronze, um, like, pan in his hands. And uh, they, would, they would offer their firstborn sons on a fire. So you burned a fire underneath this god Molech. And so it was human sacrifice. And so that became such a despised thing that the Israelites had at one time compromised and did that that they turned that into the garbage dump. And so the Valley of Hanan is where you threw all the refuse of the city out. And, um, it's just, just an awful place. Um, so Jesus uses imagery like that. Like, this is bad. I do know that Jesus is coming one day. Now, I'm not going to... Evan, you know me well enough. Other people watching won't. I, I have essentials, things I'm very confident of. It's, it's the gospel, Right. Then I have important things, but they're not essential. And then I have a lot of things I, I, I have strong opinions about, um, but it's hard to say for certain. And then I have this whole speculative theology, which I spend far too much time thinking about. And I never talk to people about. But here's one thing I do know is I'm reading through the Bible, trying to understand some of these things. When Jesus returns, I think it's going to be heaven for those who are regenerated. And I think it could be hell for those who aren't. I think the presence of God here on planet Earth for unregenerated people might be the most horrific thing that we could ever face. Being in the presence of your maker and being spiritually dead. It could be that you want to run for your life. And it could be agony at a physical level, but also agony at an emotional level of how did I get this so wrong, right? So... I can't tell you exactly what I know about hell because the Bible is actually fairly vague on it. Um, 
But what I can tell you is it's a place I believe, I believe there is somewhere that I'm going to do everything in my power to keep people away from. Okay. So I, I believe it's that bad that I've given my life to trying to make sure people don't end up in Gehenna. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. That's good. All right. I want to ask one more um, slightly spiritual question. And then uh, I want to get into maybe Faith Chapel's mission statement and a couple of personal things for you. Um, one of the questions, and I actually got this from a couple different people. Do you believe God is trying to communicate something to us through COVID-19? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've heard a lot of different things out there, right? You hear people talking about, you know, this is God's judgments, this is that. So my own understanding of, you know, why do bad things happen on planet Earth? COVID is one of them, right? But there's a million other things. Well, my understanding of Genesis chapter 3, and Evan, you'll hear me refer back to these opening chapters of the Bible because I think it, it provides a framework for understanding everything, is that when, when we chose rebellion against God, it had profound implications, not just on Adam and Eve, right? You have this relational conflict. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Um, but it had profound implications in the environment. Right. So the environment starts into this process of decay. It had these implications. It just like all over the place. So disease, famine, premature death, all of that, I think, are results of we live in a broken world. So it's broken biologically. It's broken relationally. It's broken in our walk with God. And so I don't see a tornado or a pandemic as necessarily God's specific, here you go, right? I see this is a natural display, uh, a natural outcome of a broken world. So I have a really dear friend and they had a baby recently um, who was born with some very profound uh, challenges, health challenges. And, and when, you, when he's in that place, he's like, what did I do, right? Like you can't help as a parent, like what did I do? Why is my child born this way? But it's the same question that they ask Jesus when they're passing by the guy who's blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says what? Neither. Neither. This happens so that the glory of God could be revealed and Jesus heals him. So I, I think something like COVID, God's going to use it. Romans tells me that all things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I don't think God stirred up the coronavirus in, in you know, COVID-19, I just think it's natural. It's been in our planet and it, the planet is waiting for its redemption. When Jesus comes back, Romans tells us it's groaning. Like when can we, we, we be free from all of this? But God, it doesn't mean God won't use it, right? So it's been beautiful. I've seen some, I've seen some really astounding things um, through this whole COVID-19. I know there's some bad things that have happened and our heart breaks for people who have sick or, or lost loved ones uh, but on the other hand man it's almost like our culture had to take a sabbath which is very very difficult for us to do i've seen the church step up to be the church i, I so i think god's going to use it i don't think he causes it but his he won't let it thwart his purposes that's good i love that the culture has kind of been forced to take a sabbath that's, that's good i like that <laughs> Um, all right. So a couple things. So we have students who, who call Faith Chapel their, their home church on the weekends and people who go to other churches on the weekends. And then we have people who 
are going to watch this that might not even be in Billings. So do you want to walk us through a little bit um, of what Faith Chapel's mission statement might be, or maybe walk through some of our core values? Yeah. So mission statements. <clears throat> and I've really like, there are so many churches that have like the coolest mission statement. The first church I worked at, I'm, I'm going to see if I can remember this. This is going back like 28 years. We work with Jesus Christ to see people saved, healed, empowered, and mobilized for kingdom service in the home, the church, the community, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so that was our mission statement. I had to memorize it. I had to live it out. Here's what I noticed. Nobody in our church knew our mission statement. It was hard enough as a staff member to memorize it, right? And it was very expansive. It was all-encompassing. So when we came here to Faith Chapel, I was like, okay, do we need a mission statement? And we worked through all these phrases and these, like, what's memorable. When it comes down to it, Evan, I think the mission statement of the church was given by Jesus. And it's to go make disciples, right? So we're never told to build a church. That's not what we're trying to do around here. We're just trying to build disciples. Jesus builds the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. So we are simply trying to build disciples. So we use a phrase like this. Um, we exist to um, help people find and follow Jesus. I think that's it. Like, I, I, don't think, I don't think I could put it any better than the New Testament writers do. <laughs> you know, like some twist of this or that. So our mission statement is very, very simple. And over to my left, to be your right, I'm in the atrium right now, are our um, core values. And those are the things that we kind of, that helps us live out our mission. So our mission, missions never change. Okay. So the mission culture might change radically 200 years from now. Our mission is going to be the same as we make disciples. So that's why we're not trying to have like a really interesting nuanced mission. It's like, no, no, no. We're still going to be making disciples. So the church has been doing or should be doing for 2000 years. Our core values are how are we going to carry out the mission? So we're going to believe that God is generous, right? It's at the core of who we are. We're going to believe that we grow better together. We're going to believe these different things, and that helps us carry out the mission. So that's the difference between our core values and our mission statement. Perfect. Love it. Um, okay, so a couple personal things. Um, we have people who are interested in getting in ministry and then people who are just faithfully trying to follow Jesus, and, and uh, it's kind of evident in the questions that they're asking. Um, what is a verse that you're currently meditating on and working through? And then maybe what's a verse that you have kind of uh, uses like a, a life verse, so to speak? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I never really heard of that term life verse until I moved to Montana. I heard a lot of people using that. You know, I, I think it's, I, I like the thought. I don't know if it's necessarily a biblical thing. I'm not sure where it came from, but I will tell you this. There are a few verses that have profoundly impacted me. So for my context, I had a mentor who would say this. He said, you need to have prophetic promises regarding your life. And they need to be from the scriptures. The things they do is they keep you moored when you're in time of doubting. Okay? So one would be uh, from Jeremiah chapter 1. And there's a whole history behind this, I'll tell you one day. So my parents weren't necessarily believers when I was born. They were going to name me Jeremiah, right? And uh, one of them said, well, I think Jeremiah is a book in the Bible, right? So anyway, um, here it is. This, this is, 
Here's what I mean it keeps me moored. Early on in my ministry, I felt too young. I felt um, I'm not smart enough. Uh, I'm, I'm a I'm an introvert. I really, people don't believe it, but like I really am. So here's what God says to Jeremiah. I get emotional even bringing it up. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart to be a prophet to the, to the nations. And he goes on to say to, to uproot and to tear down, to build and to plant. I can't tell you how many thousands of times when I have self-doubt, uncertainty, after a weekend where I feel like things didn't go very well, that comes back to me and I meditate on it. Um, probably for 20 years before I've spoke um, in any setting. Paul writes to Timothy. Um, I'm going to try to translate this from the original Greek. That's the way I memorized it. Paul says, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God himself is about to break into the open with his rule, and Jesus is looking over your shoulder. So teach the good news with passion. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. And so I've memorized that in three times every weekend. I, while everybody is worshiping, I quote that to myself. Um, so that's another scripture that in terms of my public Preaching that part of, of, of who I am keeps me moored. And, and then there, there would be many, many others that I, I go back to. It seems to be even how Jesus taught us to deal with the temptations of the enemy. Jesus doesn't like say anything to the devil. He just quotes him a scripture, right, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so those are those scriptures I have hidden in my heart. I come back to them on a daily basis. And something I'm meditating on right now, um, I've been enamored with Luke lately. This, you know, like this Greek guy who has some sort of background in medicine and he's, he's brilliant and he's commissioned to go interview people about Jesus and write a whole book, a biography about Jesus. And then he, he like, somehow he's radically transformed and then he follows Paul around and gives us the book of Acts. And so anything that Luke has written, I've just been drawn towards. I've been reading and rereading. Um, even this weekend, we just, uh, for this weekend service that's coming up, his whole take on the demoniac of the Gerasenes from Luke chapter 8, it's like, I just it just scratched my head and, and thought, this is astounding. Like, Luke, how did you pick up on all this? How did you write this down? And from his very Greek perspective, lately it's been helpful to me um, because I have more of a Greek mindset and worldview than I would a Hebrew one. So probably anything the book of Luke, uh, that Luke has written. Ah, good. That's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm walking through Luke right now too. And it is uh-huh. one of those things where you literally feel like you probably would have to take a full year to really <laughs> be able to digest even a portion of, of what he's trying to communicate. Um, all right. Uh, I'm going to combine two and we'll, we'll end with this. Um, what, what are some historical figures that have maybe had some influence on you? And then what are some books that have made the greatest impact on you or your leadership or your teaching? And, and maybe they're a, a historical figure that wrote a book. Who knows? Mm, books. Well, <clears throat> 
I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm a reader right now, by the way, I found this new app. Um, I've listened to, I think I'm on my 10th book since the quarantine. So there's this app, this place, I'm going to give it an advertisement right now. It's called Scribd. Yeah, Scribd. And it has audible books and then books you can read on your screen. Like audible though is like 14 bucks a month for one or two books. This is unlimited books for $8.99. So I'm walking around with ear pot. Like I'm just like 10 books. I just plowed through. So books that really impacted me. Well, when I was a boy, I think I'd read all Louis L'Amour Western books by the time I was 13. Um, and I don't, I spent way more time with Louis L'Amour than I did the writers of the biographies of Jesus. Um, and so I had to learn how to read a little bit more broadly. There are two books I'm going to mention so I probably became a follower of Jesus, you know, when I'm like 11 or 12. But I had a second experience my freshman year of college. Okay, so I, I loved God, but I was a tired Christian. I was very behavior oriented, trying to like do more, try harder. There are two books that I read that have transformed my life. First is called Classic Christianity by a guy named Bob George. I don't even know if that book's still out there. But it introduced me to the, the idea of grace. Okay, that, so salvation, somehow I had built, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a type A, oldest of five kids. That, like I had to work so hard and make God happy and pleased. And, you know, just a pusher in my whole faith was based on my performance. And I remember finishing that book. And I thought, this can't be true. There's no, this is way too good to be true. That God just loves me and it's not based on what I do and that there's grace. I was always afraid. I grew up in the church. I was afraid that I had committed the unpardonable sin. You know, that, like that vague New Testament reference. I'm like, oh, I think I just did it. I'm sure I did it. Like, it's got to be me. Or I remember thinking maybe I was the Antichrist too. Like, I am such a bad person. So this whole idea of grace, and then right after that, I read a book by an author who's much more well-known, Charles Swindoll, called Grace Awakening. And he gave me a, like a new biblical perspective for, for what grace and the kindness of God is. And it just like, I mean, it just opened up my life and it opened up. I talk to people about Jesus all the time, but it was like, you know, cranking their arm. And what if you got hit by a bus? And it opened up this idea that what if Jesus is unbelievably attractive? And all I have to do is talk about him. And the point of conversion isn't getting me to make people behave a certain way, but just introducing them to this loving God. So those two books had a profound impact on me. There's a leadership book. I think it was written in the late 1800s called They Found the Secret by Oswald Sanders. That's been very, very helpful to me. There, uh, a book I've read more recently by Tim Keller called Center Church has helped me professionally. Um, maybe for the last 15 years, I, I've been trying to read just about everything that N.T. Wright puts out. And his book on Surprised by Hope uh, is kind of about the return of Jesus and how I think maybe we have gotten a lot of things wrong. It's really opened up my eyes and made me think, I believe, more biblically than ever before. So those are just a few. And right now I'm reading... Um, James Michener's Alaska. It's a thousand pages long and I'm on page 450 and I'm bogging down.
<laughs> a thousand pages is something else. I was not. Uh, oh, and you you mentioned uh, historical figures. Um, I won't say Jesus, but definitely Jesus. And then um, I, I've read a lot recently about Winston Churchill. He just just amazes me. Uh, his his leadership capacity, his leadership during crisis, um, his tenacity. <laughs> I, I like when I started reading biographies about him. I'm like, you failed so much. <laughs> And like nobody believed he could be the prime minister. They kind of put him in as a joke, you know, because like nobody could agree on anybody else. And they thought, oh, this guy will flame out and we'll get in the person we want. But the way he led during a time of crisis and then rejection after the war as well, um, he's been he's been really interesting for me to learn from. In terms of theology writers, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I, I don't know how many people watching would be familiar with him, but he was a German theologian during World War II and wrote some very, very impactful things. Um, his letters from prison. He actually made an uh, interesting decision. He came to America. Um, they got him out of Nazi Germany. And he just felt like he couldn't be here in the United States while the atrocities um, in Nazi Germany were happening. So he sneaks back in. And he's running an underground seminary, but then eventually he, he's dealing with the problem of good and evil. And what do I do? And so he gets involved in an assassination plot to try to kill Hitler. He really believes that as a follower of Jesus, that the most righteous thing he could do was to kill Adolf Hitler. So how he arrives at that place and the beautiful, his understanding of the gospel and community are just fantastic. And then um, Karl Barth. It probably take me my whole life to read everything he wrote. But some of his perspective on the spirit and his perspective on the scriptures, they've really, really challenged me. Um, so he's another deceased German, but he's had a huge impact on my life. Um, and you know, one other person, I just thought about this, Amy Simple McPherson. So I know a lot of people who are with us right now have different perspectives, but she she started a movement of churches called Foursquare, and we're actually a part of that. And it's Foursquare is that Jesus Christ is a savior, the healer, baptizer, and the Holy Spirit, and soon coming king. So it's like being well-balanced. Her audacity, her courage, her bravery, just after women were given the right to vote, she has the largest church in North America, with seven services a weekend and 21,000 people in attendance. And the miracles that happened, she was terribly imperfect and flawed and all of that. But uh, I've just been inspired by her life. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again for doing this, Nate. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to our young adults and, and uh, in this time where we're all kind of isolated and looking for content and personalized content. This was a, a great way to, to touch base with people. So thanks for doing it. Yeah. Hey, my pleasure. So anybody who's watching, just want you guys to know, I love you and uh, keep going and proud of you guys. Love Aaron, Evan. Thanks for all that you and Larissa do. You guys are, are fantastic. And um, it's an honor to be here. And there's still like, there's still a college pastor deep inside of me. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's it's a good time. It's a good time. I'm going to hold on to it for as long as I can, too. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, all right? All right. Bye, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks again for doing this.